When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. The Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt. this episode of the show we speak with jeremy french of quill forever and the southeastern grassland initiative thanks for tuning in to episode number 168 All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. We've got a great show for you, as always, this week. Coming up with Jeremy French of the Southeastern Grassland Initiative and Quail Forever. We'll get to that in just a moment, but I've got a couple updates for all of you. First up, just in case you missed it, last week we are offering a chance to win. A free gun fitting with Lars Jacob, guest the show on episode number 167. If you are interested and willing to travel to Shoreham, Vermont, and do a gun fitting slash wing shooting instruction with Lars Jacob, send me an email. You can check out the show notes for episode number 167 for more details on how to enter. But the gist of it is, send me an email at nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Put get fit in the subject line and let me know you would like to be considered for that giveaway. We're going to run that through the month of March and I will announce the winner in April. Thank you, as always, to the Patreon supporters of the Birdshot Podcast. I know I mentioned this a few times, but I am still working on getting the Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers packaged up and ready for shipping. I'm very close to being done with those. Should be within the next few days. Had my almost four-year-old helping me out last night, putting stamps and address labels on envelopes. So if you are patiently waiting for those Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers, thank you for your patience, and you should see them in the mail very soon. 
anybody out there listening, if you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, I would appreciate your consideration in that regard. We'll send you some can coolers and Birdshot Podcast stickers as a little welcoming gift. And you'll be entered into the monthly Patreon giveaway, which after a slight mix-up in communication on my part, I still don't know if the winner of last month's drawing would like the Upland Institute complete video training series or an Onyx Elite card. So one of those two things will be available this month, just as soon as I confirm with the February winner. But there's still plenty of time to get into the March drawing and be eligible to win either of those two things. Everybody signed up by the end of the month will be included in the March drawing, and you can do so by heading over to patreon.com forward slash birdshot. And lastly, don't forget, if possible, please consider leaving the Birdshot podcast a rating and or a review. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, you can leave ratings, reviews on Apple iTunes, depending on which podcast player you use and or listen to, you may or may not have that option. But if you can follow or subscribe or share the podcast or tell a friend, Every little bit helps grow the Birdshot Podcast community, and I appreciate all of you out there listening to and helping to grow the Birdshot Podcast. All right, let's jump into our show today with Jeremy French of the Southeastern Grassland Initiative and Quail Forever. Jeremy is a natural resource professional working to restore grassland habitat in the southeast. We had a very interesting conversation on what southeastern grasslands can and should look like, what they consist of some of the history on the landscape, the threats and challenges facing that restoration, as well as some of the opportunities we have to restore native habitat and provide healthier ecosystems for quail and other wildlife species. Hope you enjoy the show today. Don't forget, we always appreciate your feedback. You can email me at nick at birdshotpodcast.com. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast of the Southeastern Grassland Initiative and Quail Forever, Jeremy French. I'm going to hit record and welcome Jeremy French to the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for joining me tonight, man. No, thank you. I'm excited to be on. Well, I, I told you that I had a pretty good Monday. How was your Monday? It was good. It was good. We're kind of, my wife was just on spring break. She's in medical school. So we got to do a lot of hiking and exploring last week, checking out some stuff, running the dogs. And now I'm kind of transitioning back into normal life where she's back in school and I'm doing chores and taking care of the pups and <laughs> doing work as well <laughs> no more spring break break back to the real world <laughs> that's right yep. <laughs> were you hiking in some grasslands or savannas or prairies at all <laughs> yeah i actually uh i led a field trip for a university um that was traveling through tennessee so we got to check out a lot of grasslands some true prairies some savannas some glades and um, my wife tagged along for that um she could probably teach just about anything i know because she hears me talk about it so often and um so we got to do some fun stuff that's good yeah that's awesome well that will definitely foreshadow our conversation today we will circle back to grasslands prairie and savannah i'm looking forward to that but first i want to get a little background on you and and intro to the intro you to the audience a little more so than i have done in the intro to this podcast i'd love to sort of tackle your job titles and stuff but i'm just gonna let you go for it that's a mouthful jeremy <laughs> so i am the interior low plateau eco region coordinator um, for the southeastern grasslands initiative which is absolutely a mouthful <laughs> i am also the rcpp coordinator for quail forever so i kind of wear 
two hats and both of them are a lot at times, but really fulfilling jobs. And basically that just means that I oversee a lot of grassland restoration, education, and outreach um, in the interior low plateau, which is northern Alabama, kind of central Tennessee, uh, most of Kentucky, southern Illinois, southern Ohio, and southern Indiana. And I'm not entirely confined to that region. Yeah. That's kind of my region that I work. Sometimes I'm in Virginia or South Carolina or um, I go back to Iowa or, or whatever it may be. But um, that's kind of my title and my main focus for work. And what is RCPP? It stands for Regional Conservation Partnership Program. Okay. Um, and it's basically a multi-million dollar grant to- geared towards restoring quail and grassland bird habitat in Tennessee and Kentucky. And is that is it private or public lands focused, one or the other? It is private lands focused. Okay. So we have a bunch of money through the federal farm bill um, that is specifically only to be spent on grassland restoration. Um, we cover about 80 counties in Kentucky and about 30 or so in Tennessee. Okay. Yeah, in my mind, I'm thinking that, and I might, might, might still be wrong, but I'm thinking your position is somewhat like some of my friends in the NRCS position that would work up here in some of the northern forests in partnership with Quail Forever, Pheasants, Pheasants Forever, and they do private lands forestry work, that kind of thing with federal funding. Right. So that's about 50% of my time is okay. what I'm doing is helping supervise, you know, our biologists who, who directly do that work out of an NRCS office, um, help train biologists and implement those programs on private land. Whereas the other half or so of my job is um, public lands, private lands, you know, teaching, whatever it may be, um, whatever kind of spreads more information and improves grassland conservation in the interior low plateau. Got it. So a career in natural resources, wildlife conversa- conservation, excuse me, there there had to have been a spark somewhere. What what led you into this line of work? How did you get exposed to the great outdoors? You know, it's really funny. Um, I grew up in South Florida, like the Everglades, South Florida, set like Southern Miami. Um, I spent a lot of time fishing, um, not really hunting, just because you know, I grew up in this weird interface. It was like kind of the city, kind of at mm. very agriculture swamps. I didn't know like fishing licenses or hunting licenses were a thing. Luckily, to, if you're a Florida <laughs> resident, um, you don't need a fishing license. But I didn't even know that was a thing. Really? Um, yeah. So That's I spent a, a lot of time just shore fishing with friends, you know, not knowing what we were doing, but still finding some success, catching everything and anything. Um, and then I decided to go to college in Iowa and like that was such a culture shock <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, and it was really a blast and I had never freshwater fished or done anything like that and um, I had a wrestling coach who was like hey you know you like being outside let's go you know hunt together and I started kind of sitting under his tree stand and we'd go hunt and like I just really really enjoyed it but that whole time, I was kind of an engineering major. I thought mm. I was going to be this, you know, hot shot, um, I don't know, <laughs> entrepreneur, engineer. Um, <laughs> went really far into my engineering degree. And one day, a good buddy of mine was like, hey, dude, you're always outside messing around with animals. Like, you should come to this wildlife conference. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm not doing anything. Sure, let's go. And it was at that conference that I met my first mentor. I changed my major that day and started an ecology club. And that just kind of 
you know, grew into me spending a lot of time hunting, a lot of time fishing, a lot of time bird hunting, um, with and without dogs, which hunting without dogs is very hard in Iowa, um, and doing a lot of research as well. And it just kind of grew into this passion that I didn't realize I had. I knew my whole life I enjoyed being outside. I really enjoyed, you know, just hiking, fishing, exploring, petting alligators, Florida man stuff, you know. <laughs> um, and it, it led me down this career all because a buddy of mine was like, hey, man, I, I think you're in the wrong career field. And he, he was very right. He was very right. I don't think I'd be a happy engineer. Uh, that that's that's crazy that that is a little bit of a roundabout way to find yourself where you are but it sounds like uh definitely things lined up for a reason and yeah there was that that common love of the outdoors throughout the whole thing oh yeah yeah you got any got any crazy alligator stories oh yeah i guess (laughs) (laughs) i think one of the the funniest stories that i can ever tell is probably my junior year in college I helped lead a trip for my university down to the Everglades and like we had all these kids from the Midwest and like uh, I was like literally born and raised in the Everglades and my now wife was on that trip and there's this alligator like on the side of the road and like everyone was like freaking out and I'm like dude it's just like a swamp pumpy just like go over and shoot it away <laughs> and she was like super freaking out and everyone in our class was freaking out and I was like okay it, we just need to go. So I like walked up and I grabbed this alligator by the tail and like wiggled. It. I mean, it's like a five foot alligator, nothing too crazy. And I like shot off into like the, uh, the canal. And my wife at the time, we were just like friends, barely yeah. even like friends, you know? And she was like, you are absolutely nuts. <laughs> you are crazy. <laughs> and like on that trip, I went on to like, have to like move a cotton mouth off the road and like do all these like things that like, to me growing up in Florida, it's like, that's normal, you yeah. know? You see, like, an alligator in the road, you go, like, swat them away. And, like, all these Midwestern kids were, like, bright-eyed and, like, bushy-tailed. Like, what is this guy doing? And I'm like, <laughs> these are, like, dear to me, man. <laughs> they're, they're just pets. <laughs> you swept your wife off your feet, off her feet, shooing away alligators and cottonmouths. And <laughs> yeah, I think she knew I was her knight in shining armor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. How cool are the Ever- Everglades, by the way? I, I have ne- never seen them, but... Man, they are very, very cool. I, unfortunately, so like I have now all this knowledge and education and botany and geology and ecology, and I haven't really been back to the Everglades a bunch with that ed- education, mm. which you look at things differently. Yeah. But I look back very fondly of all my time being able to explore the Everglades and like do different things that. I took for granted as a kid, really, you know, not most places can you go and like walk out to the bay and cast a line and hang out with friends and catch sharks and snapper and, and, you know, grouper and stingrays. And like, I was very uh, spoiled as a kid and and I was not very aware of it um, until, you know, later in life. And I was like, God, I've apparently done a lot of things that most, even other biologists would like, you're like, oh, that's kind of crazy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I can, I can relate to that a little bit. It's not as quite as exotic, but, you know, riding my bike down to – I had freedom to ride my bike down to Lake Superior and, and fish the tributaries and catch trout. And I always – I jokingly say sometimes that my friends and I chased 
grouse with wrist rockets and mountain bikes and <laughs> we, we didn't we didn't do that a, a ton but we did it a little bit and yeah those are things you, you don't you don't even think twice of as a kid but pretty lucky to be able to grow up with that kind of freedom and that sort of access to the outdoors right oh for sure i'm jealous of where you live sometimes i've gotten a lot to spend a lot of time in in the boundary waters my wife and i oh yeah did like our uh before we got married, we're obviously very different than most people. We weren't like, oh, let's have a bachelor, bachelorette party. We're like, let's go fish on the Great Lakes, you know? <laughs> and we, we were able to catch some Lakers out there. And it's like, that is a very, very cool ecosystem you live up in. And great outdoorsman culture. And, and I'm a little bit jealous sometimes. I love Tennessee in the southeast. Yeah. Um, but, like, the Northwoods holds a special place in my heart to me. Yeah. I don't know how jealous you were when we talked last week and it was like, in the single digits still i was <laughs> I, I was not real happy about that <laughs> oh man yeah we we're very fortunate in tennessee we'll get like a i think on friday we got six inches of snow and it was gone the next day so i did i did actually coincidentally i heard about that we had a uh, upland gun company gun fitting event down in tennessee over the weekend and i was talking to our gun fitter today del whitman he said it was at like 60 degrees or something on friday and then the next day it was like 20 and buried in snow <laughs> yeah yeah so friday morning uh, friday afternoon my wife and i did a bunch of like work in our garden just kind of prepping it for spring yeah and it started it was like 73 degrees and then by the evening it was 40 and we were like oh what what's going on today and then that <laughs> night is like dropped six inches of snow and really cold the next day and then it, it was gone so we get we get kind of the good parts of winter i think we get the nice fluffy snow and it sticks around for a few days and then we get a a warm streak and then it's gone. So I don't yeah. envy the amount of snow I see out your window right now. <laughs> yeah. You can't see that back there. <laughs> yeah. We, this has been, I mean, we, I would say we've been overdue for a real winter and this winter we got it as far as cold and, and snow. It wasn't, um, I don't know. It wasn't too bad, but we got, we got a lot of snow and it was a good winter for the grouse. As I've been telling people, it was consistently cold and they had lots of good fluffy roosting snow. So that's good. Awesome. But we, we got a lot to melt yet. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. We'll be in spring in like two weeks. You guys got a, a little ways to go. <laughs> yeah. I'll be calling you and Adair and I'll be, uh, expressing my frustrations with you guys. <laughs> Adair's already oh. sending me pictures of his dogs pointing woodcock, and he's got his spring training season rolling already. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. All all my friends have been running their dogs quite a bit because we've had some good weather and it makes me really want to get out. And it, it's I'm ready for spring. I'm ready really for spring turkeys and, and morel mm. mushrooms and just being able to go take my dog out and go swim or kayak around. It's winter's uh it's time for winter to be gone <laughs> yeah yeah um, I, I agree with you on that what when does turkey season get rolling for you uh the last week of this month so kind of last okay. week of march first week of april and yep. i've already seen birds strutting in there already really? they're getting ready to go yeah very cool well we're going to transition into various savannas and grasslands but i don't want to skip over we did talk about and you mentioned it the upland bird hunting that you started doing in college in the Midwest, pheasant hunting with and without a dog. Talk to me a little bit about that. Where did that start? Did you just come up with that? I mean, I know you had some mentors and you kind of got exposed to that, but how did you how did you first get exposed to upland bird hunting and dogs and stuff? Yeah, so I first, you know, kind of started with hunting deer. Um, kind of my first few years, I really focused on that. And yep. I only hunted public land because I didn't know anybody in Iowa. And... As I got a grasp on that, 
um, my mentor, who's both my was both my um, my like a- a- academic mentor as well as my hunting mentor, was oh, like, cool. "Hey, you know, you want to go hunt some pheasants today?" And I was like, "I don't even know what a pheasant in, but a pheasant is, but let's go." <laughs> it's zero degrees outside. We don't have a dog, but man, let's go. And that first day we probably walked like 15 miles and didn't like kick up a bird. Like we just did not see anything. And I was like, Hey, is this like normal? <laughs> you know, is this welcome to pheasant the, hunting? <laughs> yeah. Is this a usual? And he's like, he was like, Oh, well usually, you know, I have my lab with me and my lab can, you know, flush birds and like do all these things. So we ended up going back out like the next week and like with a dog and we were able to see some birds. I wasn't a very good shot. You know, when we first started hunting, I think now I think pheasants are easier than most game birds to to hit just because kind of they flush out in front of you and, you know, they're usually flying away and fairly big target, uh, fairly big target. Yeah. Um, but it was just really fun because I was out be able to be out there with this guy who knew all the plants of Iowa. He knew the history. Um, he had grown up in, in California and moved to Iowa similar to me and like both being able to learn, you know, how to hunt, how to set up different areas, how to, you know, run birds with your dog, um, while also learning the ecology. I mean, it just, it married it, you know, to me where it just, things clicked better, you know, when I was out running behind a dog or out, you know, deer hunting or turkey hunting, where I could understand these ecosystems a lot more. So that's how it started off really bad, I guess, walking 15 miles and not seeing a bird. <laughs> we always joke around and we call them death marches or death hikes. And it's oh, yeah. like, but then, you know, we started, I started seeing more su- success and I would go out by myself, just by myself. Um, and you know, no dog and be able to find birds. And then I got my chocolate lab scout thinking that I was going to, you know, be this duck hunting, uh, mogul, which I am not, I'm not a good duck hunter, <laughs> but um my lab is a very good dog he works with me quite a bit he follows direction he's very much the type of dog that he maybe doesn't have the biggest prey drive or the biggest you know um instinctual drive but he will work with me no matter what um, high cooperation he, yeah it's yeah. super high cooperation he just wants to please and be happy and so i've gotten to shoot birds over him and that's kind of he's getting to the point in his career where he's more of a couch dog than a bird dog he's getting kind of older and yeah been thinking of getting like a, a pointer or something i gotta sell my wife on that nick's trying to get me to get a new dog so <laughs> it'll <laughs> happen surprise. But, <laughs> um but yeah I, I think the mix of being able to work with my dog i mean i love my dog so much he's just this big hundred pound goofy lab that will do anything for me and just being outdoors man it i, I love it there's no there's no better thing than you know walking through a nice prairie savannah and kicking up some birds and I got the opportunity now since I moved down to South to do some, you know, woodcock hunts with Adair and, and Harold, as well as me and Harold have done some quail hunts, and it it's a blast working over pointers. I I've had never worked over a pointer before, and I really yeah. enjoy it. It makes me want a pointer. My lab's just probably listening to me in the other room talk <laughs> crap about how I want a pointer over him, but... <laughs> Yeah, he was the first though. He'll always Absolutely. be the first. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's that's cool. The I like the concept of the ecology and the ecosystem, kind of pulling it all together for you and giving you some added depth. I would I would say that as I've gotten older and done more hunting and really gotten more into it with my dogs and doing the podcast and stuff and talking to resource professionals, like 
the understanding of the ecosystem and the plants and the biology, that's really has added a lot of depth to my experience as a bird hunter. And I, I it's just something that, I mean, I'm kind of always curious about, I'm really persistent learner trying to understand things better. And yeah, it, it just adds a lot more depth, I think, to your experience. Other, you start to put, not to mention it helps you be a better hunter too. I mean, you put patterns together and you kind of, you know what you're looking at versus just letting things happen to you. You kind of have a better understanding of maybe why the birds are in a certain place. And yeah, that's a cool component of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And, and getting to go with, with my mentor, I mean, obviously you spend enough time walking together, you know, hunting birds it's not just, I'm very, like a very big advocate on finding a mentor, whether in ecology or in hunting, because yeah. it's not just learning about bird hunting or ecology that he taught me. We, we talked about life. We talked about, you know, all different types of things and, and really built this relationship. But at the same time, we would be able to pull about part, you know, the crops of birds and identify seeds and really like get down to the nitty gritty, um, of, where are these birds? Where are these animals? Why are they using this specific location? Why did we flush this bird here and, you know, not here? Um, and I think that created really this understanding um, for these systems, but also these love for these systems. And I'm like you, I, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm never, I have like this crave to know everything, which is impossible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's not going to stop me from asking questions and, you know, being curious. And I think that makes us better trainers you know better handlers for our dogs but also better hunters and outdoorsmen and really understanding what we need out there and you know how we can help as hunters and fishermen and outdoorsmen yeah absolutely do you happen to re- do you remember the like, the first pheasant that you got a crack at i remember the first pheasant i got a crack at i did not kill it <laughs> 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 i i remember it like it was yesterday i was actually hunting with a younger kid who's kind of like my mentee now and we got to the point in our hunt where we were more so like talking with guns in our hands and hunting because we were tired (laughs) and he looks at me and he points out this sumac shrub which is a really common shrub and he's like hey what type of you know shrub is that you know why is it here and i was like oh you know this is why it's here this is the cover it you know provides and we're just kind of standing you know around each other and all of a sudden, this rooster, like three feet from under the shrub, flies out into our face and like kind of pauses like 10 feet in the air. And I swing my gun up and I'm just like, I'm trying to kill this bird. <laughs> and like, I'm sending, you know, I was probably very stupidly not using heavy enough shot. And like, I could see feathers like poof off this bird and it just doesn't fall. Oh, and it kind of pauses for a second and keeps flying. And I, like, turned to, his name's Jaron, and I was like, Jaron, why didn't you shoot at that bird? Like, what, he's like, dude, I saw you kill that bird in my head. I don't know why I didn't fall out of the sky, <laughs> but that's, like, the terminator of birds. And uh, I learned very quickly after that to go up to a, a better choke and, you know, a little bit better shot, because I was probably just shooting, you know, cheapest stuff I could find at Walmart, because I was a college kid. And Yeah, yeah. But that, that you know, that flush... Yeah, I can. I replay it in my head all the time, and I'm like, that bird's still out there somewhere. Probably not. Someone's probably got him, <laughs> but in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In your mind, he lives on for sure. Y- yes. Yeah. Oh, blank. I was gonna ask you something. Um, uh, tell me about the first woodcock hunt that you went on with with a deer. Oh man. 
So that was like a uh, a pot hunt kind of day. We duck hunted in the morning and saw uh. no ducks. <laughs> <laughs> we saw a lot of woodcocks flying around. Um, and we were like, hey, you know, let's go, you know, hunt some woodcocks and let's run the dogs. And we very quickly got into a lot of woodcocks, you know, and that is a very different flushing bird. I guess I should back up for a second. We're going out to hunt woodcocks and Nick's like, hey, man, um, you don't want to carry that heavy 12 gauge that you've shot, you know, for the past five years and you know really well and you've got all your chokes for. Here's this side by side 20 gauge that you've never shot. Have you ever shot a side by side? I was like, no. And he's like, ah, oh, it'll be fine. Here's this box of shells. <laughs> so it's like, here's this gun you've never shot with these, you know, loads you've never shot. And at a, we're going to go hunt these types of birds that you never shot. And I was like, all right, like, I've shot at birds before. I've shot a lot of rabbits. Like, I've shot a lot of small game. How do these birds, like, act? And he's like, oh, well, you know, they kind of flush up a tree and then out. And I'm like, okay, in my brain, that makes sense. It'll be Theoretically. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> and we go out there, and, like, five minutes in, one of his dogs goes on point, And she's in, like, this thick cedar, like, choked out worse area in the world when you think of like shooting you probably have shot in worse hunting you know grass (laughs) i can i can i think i could picture it yeah (laughs) and nick was like hey go flush that bird and i was like okay i'm gonna you know circle around get in front of the dog and you know try and walk kind of straight at this dog and i get to where i'm like literally i could almost pet this dog and i was like nick your dog is false pointing right now there is no bird in front of me And he's like, oh, no, you know, I know my dog. There's something there. And I look down, and this woodcock about hits me in the face. And, like, I throw (laughs) this, you know, double barrel up. And I pull the trigger once. And, like, I'm very much used to my shotgun where you're just boom, boom. And I cannot find the second trigger until it's, like, way far too late. Back trigger. And we ended up getting – we probably saw somewhere between 11 and 15 birds – that day i killed one which i was very proud of i was ecstatic i about lost my mind because nice. we we did a bunch of work probably the most eventful point of the day was one of the other dogs pointed a, a bird and it was like in a you, you ever have those points where you're like oh that's not really the habitat that there should be and they must yeah. be pointing something weird yeah and we all kind of sat around and decided like oh we don't think there's any birds there so nick's like okay i'll just walk in and like release her he walks in and releases um, his dog, and four woodcock just explode out of where he, he walked. And I was like, <laughs> well, I guess we should trust your dog. <laughs> but it was a blast, man. I'm hooked. I can't wait to go back next year. And Nick's kind of talking me into getting a pointer so that I can go on my own. But it's so fun. <laughs> That's cool. I, I imagine there's a lot of listeners kind of smiling because, yeah, as much as we always – but people like to say, you know, trust your dog. And, and as much as you think that for whatever reason, that it's not uncommon to have a set of circumstances where you start overanalyzing and you start thinking, nope, that's just not the right habitat, right? There's no birds there. And sure enough, you know, it never fails really. There's, there's always, you know, there's a grouse or there's four woodcock there in your case. (laughs) Yeah. I, I had very low confidence at that point. I suppose Nick had higher confidence because he brought a gun with him to go flush him and he did get a shot up, but there no way in my head where there are four woodcocks sitting there, but that I guess I, that's the old adage, you know, woodcock will be where woodcock will be. So <laughs> indeed, indeed, yeah, yeah, that's very cool. But that's so you got to see, you obviously got to see quite a bit of dog work, got to see 
quite a few birds in the air. I mean, that for sure a successful hunt. Oh, absolutely. You can't ask for much more than that. Yeah. Uh, I remembered what I wanted to ask you earlier. You mentioned sumac, and that is a plant that I'm familiar with it. I'm pretty sure I can identify it, but tell me a little bit more about it because I know it as the plant that, and I'm, I could be wrong here, but I'm almost positive it is, it's Aldo Leopold, a San County Almanac, writes about sumac being the red lanterns they they turn really red in the fall and he kind of talks about he writes of course very eloquently about following going from one red lantern to the next red lantern in search of rough rough grouse i'm i'm sort of like going off my memory here on san county almanac but tell me a little more about the sumac plant yeah so leopold writes about it really well you know sumac are kind of the harbingers of fall in my opinion they're the first things to turn this really gorgeous bright red some people love them some people hate them they kind of have they obviously they have their place they're very important habitat um because of the, the the way they grow they can be detrimental to smaller prairies and you know smaller you know mm. crps and stuff like that um they're semi-rhizomous which basically means they send out kind of like clones they grow kind of like grass but they're really good bird habitat when you can contain them um, and, and when you can utilize them. So, the, you know, Leopold writes about them with grouse. They're really good quail covey headquarters. Mm. Um, it's a refugia for quail. Um, I like to, in the southeast, we make a, a lemonade from their berries. So their berries are edible and very sour. If you take those berries and kind of seep them in water and honey, they become really good. That sounds cool. Um, and they're just this kind of spindly, yeah, they're this spindly, shrubby shrub that's, you know, really pretty in the fall, has these dark purple berries, you know, mm. kind of in the summer, provide a lot of good bird habitat. Yeah, very cool. So, yeah, that, that definitely uh, supports Leopold's fondness of the sumac. It's a, is, yeah, is it, very Would it be cool. classified as a shrub? Yes. Okay. So, in the down here, our sumacs can grow like, I don't know, 30 feet or so high. Um, but in the Midwest, you know, you're usually... You're kind of topping at it around 10 feet high. Yep. But the the greatest habitat cover comes from them. If we can keep them kind of low and clustered tight together, yep. they create that good bird habitat where, you know, a pheasant or a quail or, you know, grouse can run under them and hide under their interlocking branches from a lot of predators. Uh, good stem density and good escape cover. Absolutely. Very cool. All right. Well, on, on that note, let's transition a little bit into kind of the meat of our conversation today. And if, if there's a way to sort of branch off of that, because we're talking, you're talking a little bit about prairies and savannas. Let's, let's define prairie, savanna, and grassland. Would, would those three things work as far as defining them and each being their own separate entity? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we talk about grasslands and this, so grassland as a whole, right? We have grasslands in the Midwest, we have grasslands in the Southeast, we have, you know, grasslands in the Intermountain West. That name is really kind of a misnomer because in those systems, the grass is kind of important, but really what defines those systems is the wildflowers. So if we talk about like the prairies um, of, you know, the Midwest, we're talking about treeless prairies dominated by wildflowers and forbs, some grasses that would have spanned, you know, millions and millions of acres, roughly 6,000 years old most of the time, right? We have those same types of prairies in the southeast. So they're treeless. They're, 
expansive. They're a treeless ecosystem dominated by wildflowers. And we would have had historically roughly about 10 million acres in the southeast, which is really significant because mm. no one, you know, we talked a lot about research. A lot of the to- talk we talk about grasslands in the southeast is about things that five years ago we didn't really know. You know, so this is like new research. So the grasslands of the southeast, we would have had about 10 million acres of prairie. There's less than 1% of that currently existing. Less than 1%. Less than 1%, correct. Grasslands as a whole in the southeast have declined by 99%. So, you know, whether we're talking about grasslands, savannas, marshes, fens, glades, whatever they may be, we're talking about ultra rare ecosystems. Um, endangered ecosystems, right? So those prairies would have spanned such an expanse in in Kentucky and all throughout the Southeast that Audubon talks about, you know, um, you know, taking friends out and and hunters out and in Kentucky and Tennessee, in Northern Tennessee. um, And they would go and shoot so many prairie chickens that they would leave some lie because they were just had too much prairie chicken meat. Um, Obviously the prairie chickens are gone (laughs) from most places. So, where, you know, you may be similar with the, the prairies of, of the Midwest, we're facing a similar thing in the Southeast, except we've only known about these systems for five years. We've known about the prairies in the Midwest for a very long time. Yeah. So prairies would have covered about 10 million acres. The most common grassland in the Southeast would have been savannas. So we're talking about a treed kind of grassland where there would have been Different speciation of trees scattered throughout um, the area. Generally less than 25 trees an acre. Really probably more close to 5 to 10 trees per acre Hmm. in a savanna. And this was the most common um, habitat type in the southeast. We're talking about over 120 million acres of savanna historically existed. There's 1% of that left. And we go, you know, whether you want to look at it from starting in the Atlantic coast where we would have had longleaf pine savannas, you know, very critical to quail habitat. So coming more westward, we would have had post oak, um, shortleaf pine savannas, just these vast extensive areas that would have burned regularly, had very sparse trees on them, but tons of wildflower, tons of shrubs, ton of tons of cover for grassland birds like prairie chickens, pheasants, you know, and quail. And then there's some other smaller um, kind of grassland systems in the southeast, like glades, barrens, and bogs, which are, you know, a glade or a barren can be described by being like a rocky, really shallow soiled grassland that in the winter um, is generally wet, but then in the summer they're like a desert. So we see a high level of endemism, in these grassland, which means there's species that occur, plant species as well as animal species that occur in these grasslands that don't occur anywhere else. Mm. And like I said before, all these grasslands have declined by 99%. Um, obviously, you know, we're on a, a bird hunting podcast, so how does that tie into it? Well, we talk a lot about the quail, you know, in the southeast, Bob yep. White quail. And in the past, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, which is like one of the best bird labs in, in the maybe the world yeah um came out with a report last year that since 1970 seven there's been a population decline of grassland birds by 700 million 
you know, we're talking about 50 years, 700 million population decline across all of that. In the past 10 years, the quail population has roughly declined by 50% and it's projected to decline by another 50%. What time period was that? 10 years, 50%? Mm-hmm. Man. Do you have any idea what the percentage decline that 700 million represents? Because obviously that's a big number, but... Of all bird species, it is the... So in the past 50 years, we've seen a decline of all bird species by 3 billion. Grassland birds is the large percent of mm. that. Gotcha. And gotcha. it's it's so many different species that, you know, some species it's 50, 60 percent. You know, some are, are hanging on, but... We see we're seeing a lot of common species like the eastern meadowlark populations just absolutely plummet. Hmm. Where we talk to people, where you know, thirty, forty years ago, everyone saw an eastern meadowlark in their pasture or, or something like that, and they were just like whatever birds. Now they're rare. You know, overall, our grassland birds are just you know dropping like a rock, and it's a direct reflection of the fact that we're losing these grassland habitats. And, and they're blinking out in the same way they're blinking out in the Midwest, you know, because there's also less than 1% of historic prairie left in the Midwest. We're facing that times 10 in the Southeast where we have this expansive population that's exploding. Um, we have a lack of knowledge and, and, and research because the prevailing thought for a lot of these systems in the Southeast, you know, before five years ago were that, from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Mississippi River was this dense old growth forest. Mm, yeah. So much so that like my my colleague and, and you know boss, Dwayne Estes, talks about being taught in school in Tennessee, you know, the myth of the squirrel, that a squirrel could go from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Mississippi and never touch the ground. And I was taught the same thing in Florida that outside of Florida you know, everything was just this dense, hardwood, old-growth forest, and that's entirely not true. Like I said, we've had 120 million acres or more of just savanna. That's not counting the 10 million acres of prairie and glades and all these other ecosystems, mountain, you know, top balds. And we've lost, you know, generally when I'm looking at a remnant, you know, something that's undisturbed, we're looking at a piece of property that's less than an acre or five acres, so they become very rare. And as the population in the southeast explodes, you know, you're seeing more and more of these grassland remnants disappear. And that ties into, you know, this drop in, in quail habitat. And I often hear in the southeast, you know, oh, what happened to the quail? Did the coyotes get them? Did the snakes mm-hmm. get them? Did the ants get them? Um, and I'm sure to some percentage that plays a role. You know, nature is scary. <laughs> Nature's tough. Right. But the main thing is they have no place to go. There's no grassland habitat out there left. There's no shrubland habitat out there left. And with all this research we're doing, we're finding out really, really cool things. But it's kind of a race of against time to restore some of these systems, to, yeah. to make it so, you know, generations to come can work, you know, quail behind a bird dog. Because if we don't really change, I don't foresee that happening. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. 
Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Man, that's a lot. That's a lot to digest. I've, I'm familiar with some of the concepts. I know I saw some of the stuff coming out of the the Cornell Lab about the, you know, the crazy precipitous drop in in bird numbers and bird population. And of course, this, you know, this conversation has come up a lot on this podcast before, as far as habitat decline and, you know, the, the more habitat you lose. The, you you don't lose it all in one spot. You kind of lose it all over the place and then you lose connectivity between those things. And, you know, then it becomes this snowball effect and this downward spiral for the birds. They lose genetic diversity and the ability to be resilient and survive. You know, if you have, you get hit in one area in the past, you could, the birds of another area could kind of overpopulate and move, move around, but you don't really have that. They don't have that opportunity as much anymore. Right. Exactly. I often explain to people, you know, um, I get the the pleasure of working with a lot of landowners and a lot of really people who care about their property. And everyone wants this kind of clean, concise way to say that it's not our fault, <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> and generally, um, that's not true. But I often compare it to like, hey, if something were to happen to you in your house, like you know your house really well, you know your exits, you know your entrances, you know how to move around your house, you could probably walk through your house with all the lights off and only stub your toe once. That's your habitat. When we take these quail out of their habitat, you know, if we have the right systems, they can fend off predators. They can, you know, move around. They can get to their escape cover. If we take that away from them, it's like dropping you in the middle of, you know, a foreign landscape you've never seen. And now everything's trying to eat you because everything loves a quail. Sure. It's a softball-sized bowl of deliciousness out there (laughs) Uh, so it it undoubtedly the most important thing you know to restoring the quail um or at least getting it back to the point where we can have safely huntable populations throughout most southeast is restoring these grasslands yeah and restoring these grasslands is not just about the quail the quail is an important aspect to me right but we're talking about you know one out of three reptiles is in steep decline as well we're talking about we have plants that are, you know, at risk of endangered species, pollinating species like the monarch or the the rattlesnake moth borer or all these, you know, pollinating species that are extremely important to all bird populations are in rapid decline because we're losing these grassland habitats as well. Yeah, that's a common theme with a lot of these habitat types. You mentioned barrens. That's something I have a little bit of familiarity with because we have some barren habitat up here and there are sharp-tailed grouse that inhabit that that barren habitat in a, in areas that you wouldn't really think there would be sharp-tailed grouse because a lot of times, again, our sort of shortened rear-view mirror view of the world is not not exactly <laughs> accurate, right? Think, yep. Oh, this was nothing but trees here. Maybe forgetting about the you know the raging wildfires that would come through and probably open up mile after mile of of habitat for a long time, and that would be that would be open landscape where there might be sharp tails and all these other species that would u- utilize that habitat. And it's interesting because yes, yeah, of course there's, 
species like the sharp-tailed grouse or the bobwhite, I mean, that gets somebody like me fired up and you fired up, but maybe it's the monarch butterfly that gets somebody else fired up. And we want to make sure that we're talking together, right? Not all running around in, in separate directions. Like we have a common goal. Yeah, absolutely. So I often, you know, talk to Nick or whoever will listen to me. It's like we've we've got the bird hunter's ear, right? Everyone listening to this podcast, they care about bird hunting. You know, they care about doing these things. Oftentimes, the people that we have to reach are, you know, suburbanites and make them realize that this stuff is just as important. And sometimes we can't reach them through hunting. But if you explain to them the plight of the monarch butterfly or you're Mm -hmm. able to show them, you know, this beautiful habitat um, where it's covered in wildflowers, then they start, you know, kind of like coming around and understanding. And really, it's going to take you, whether you're in the Midwest or wherever we are, to, to really make habitat improvement. It takes more than, you know, a few hunters getting together. Um, we've grown from the times of, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and stuff where, yes, hunters, you know, fund a large portion of conservation. And that's a really good, you know, badge of honor that we should all wear. But we have to go beyond that. We have to go beyond, you know, the turkey and the deer and understand that managing these habitat types and these ecosystems for more than game species will drastically improve game species as well. And you hit on a really interesting point. You know, I get the question all the time. It's like, where did these grassland go? You know, we lost 120 plus million acres or, you know, 10 plus million acres and millions of acres in the Midwest. Um, And there's no simple answer, really. But one of the biggest components to that is we stopped fire. As soon as we, you know, (laughs) you know, started farmsteading and and ranching and, you know, establishing these farmsteads, the first thing we wanted to do is we didn't want fire to come burn down, you know, our cattle, our livestock, you know, yeah. in our homes. Pretty logical, and obviously, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, that's logical, and I, and I understand that. And we've kind of like my friend Kyle Ivar, he likes to call them green bullets. We, we've designed these green bullets that it's like, oh, if we just do this, it will fix everything. Earth Day, go out there and plant a tree, you know, do this, <laughs> do this. And all these things are very nuanced, you know. It, wildlife management and ecology we have to understand the nuance on different levels it's not just most important to have the most forbs we want to have the right forbs it's not most important to have fire we want to have fire at the right time yeah um and i think that sometimes maybe i annoy people with that because i'm like oh <laughs> you know we don't want to you don't want to just go out there and set fire anytime what's our goal you know are we looking at doing x well then we need to burn here um but removing fire is one of those things that cause these grasslands to decline. The loss of bison also. You know, we would have had bison all the way into the panhandle of Florida, all the way up the East Coast, and then all the way, wow. you know, to Canada. Yeah. You know, we had large herds of bison. A lot of the places that are settled in the southeast were settled because they were historic licks or stamps or they had access to these grasslands. So like Nashville is a really good example. Nashville was settled on a place that was called French Lick. No relation to me, but I wish. It's kind of <laughs> fortuitous. But um, And they settled this area because it was a salt lake surrounded by grasslands that was covered in bison and elk. There wow. hasn't been a bison or an elk in Nashville in, you know, 100 plus years. So we've lost all these kind of key parts. And like you said, those things kind of build up together and build up together. And now we're facing, you know, 99% decline. And it's like, okay, what do we do? People are starting to realize 
and it it's tough there's got to be a lot of nuance to it mm-hmm. but it's part of our culture and our history and our heritage and i think it, it's really important yeah and you know sometimes a conversation like this you know we're preaching to the choir a lot when we're talking to bird hunters and people that spend time in the landscape and the habitat but i think you bring up an important point that you know it helps it's it should not be undervalued us having these conversations to better our understanding so that when we do find ourselves talking to somebody, we can sort of find that common ground where it's not just, you know, oh, let me tell you about my last hunting trip. It's, hey, let me tell you what I saw when I was out here on this piece of public land in this native habitat. That's that's where you find the common ground, I think. Yeah, and that common ground is important because at the end of the day, hunters are outnumbered, you yeah. know, and bird hunters especially yeah (laughs) you know we're we we're at times you know we're the the small fish in the pond but if we're able to share the importance um of these places and when tie into other user groups as well as non-user groups you know for example we've kind of you know in our deer hunter i'm a big deer hunter so maybe i'm you know a product of this too we've been sold this bag with a big deer on it of seed you know food Mm. plot seed yeah and that's been like every hunting show you see, you see, you know, some famous insert famous hunter here, insert clover plot or food plot, insert big deer. So what our youth and a lot of hunters do, they, you know, equate in their head, I need clover plot to shoot big deer. And I am not anti food plot. I don't really call them food plots. I call them, you know, kill plots because generally if I'm using a small food plot, it's because I want something to step out where I have clear shooting lanes. Sure. Yeah. But if we devoted that time to managing our habitat, not only would we be able to have, you know, pheasant, grouse, quail, and all these grassland birds to hunt, we'd have better deer herds too. Because when you look at the average closed canopied forest, which is the majority of what landowners have on their property, as well as oftentimes the majority of what's on public land, um, you're looking at about 100 pounds of forage per year, per acre, right? If you compare that to your average grassland, your prairie, or savanna, that goes up tenfold. Wow. So in one acre of prairie, there's a thousand pounds of forage per year. And not only are we providing that forage, you know, over, you know, maybe a food plot or a closed canopy forest, um, we're providing cover. We're providing not, and not, that's, you know, helping the deer. But if we can provide those things, it's helping monarchs. It, it's helping, you know, the American bumblebee that's absent from seven states now. You know, it's helping deer, fawn, it's helping the quail, it's helping the pheasants, helping all those things. So I think having those conversations and shifting and educating our management practices is going to be a really huge component to ensuring the next generation of bird hunters have birds to hunt. Yeah. That's kind of funny when you think about like, I mean, deer don't seem to be struggling too much. Like they, <laughs> I think they've kind of proven their ability to adapt and utilize different food sources. Like why do, why do we have to plant food for a deer? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and I agree with you, you know, we should be focusing that if we took, you know, I have this heartbreaking story um, that was passed down to me about this really rare one acre grassland that had a ton of endemic species in it. And it's like this last piece hanging on down to one acre. And a hunter bought the property. So most people would think, oh, man, that's great. You know, a hunter, he's going to go there and conserve it. And because of the lack of education out there, um, he went and plowed this one acre really rare grassland habitat and turned it into a food plot. Mm. You know, so that's kind of something that really drives me because I think that if we could see – 
you know, the benefits and be able to have our cake and eat it too. Cause I like shooting deer, but man, I love right. chasing birds with my dog and I love healthy ecosystems. You know, maybe instead of planting 10 acres of a food plant plot, plant a quarter and then focus all the rest of that time into developing native habitats that don't need to fertilize. You don't need to plow them every year. Maybe every three to five years you need to burn them and you're going to have bigger, better deer and more turkeys and more pheasants and more quail and you can have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. So that's a lot of, you know, what I'd like to focus on this year. I kind of set goals for myself in my career is like reaching at, reaching these, these hunters and showing them that they can have their deer hunting, you know, but also have their cake and have really quality bird habitat at the same time. And then also reaching out to the suburban house moms and say, look at these pretty flowers, look at these butterflies. We need to be restoring and protecting this as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and again, a lot of times just a little simple education, you realize there there might be a better op- option out there that you don't know about, right? Like the, the guy planting the food plot, in his in his mind, he's doing something to benefit himself yep. in his wildlife and his land where – a little bit of education maybe he realizes that there's a better opportunity and that's you know that's what you're talking about it's like not everybody knows that and you know that's not their fault for going yeah, absolutely out, for going out planning a planning a food plot, plot like that you mentioned something i was going to ask like when it comes to maintenance of a food plot versus native habitat would native habitat require significantly less like ongoing maintenance absolutely you know so most food plots um, you're replanting on a yearly basis, you're adding fertilizer, you're, you're, you know, plowing, you're reseeding, you're doing all these things. When we're doing these prairie recreations or restorations or savannah restorations, whatever it may be, we're going in there and we're front-loading our management. Oftentimes we have to kill what's there because it's covered in invasives or non-natives or non-beneficial species like fescue. So your first two years, it's going to be a good amount of work. We're going to have to kill what's there. We're sure. going to have to manage and be intent, you know. And then once we get to kind of that three to five year range where we're just every three to five years, we're just going to burn that area. There's never you're never going to fertilize it. We're going to go in there, kill it, plant it, let it grow, let it mature. Obviously different, you know, depending what happens in that first year, you have different prescriptions for that area. But three to five years out, we're just burning that on a rotation where we're burning a quarter of it every three years, you know, or a quarter of it every year. Because one of the key parts of managing those systems, you know, or those prairie plots or the CRPs, is if we go out there and we burn the whole thing one year, well, there goes all your bird cover, you know, (laughs) there goes all your pollinator cover. It's really important to manage those on smaller scales. But the input is way less you know and i manage a a hunting farm for myself right now and i can tell you that i don't have to think about anything to do to my prairie plots except you know okay we've got some good weather let me go out and you know burn this five acre plot yeah very cool you mentioned something earlier that i kind of was i'm i'm always interested in the history and how things happen and it was kind of the 10 million i think it was the 10 million acres of grassland that prairie a prairie that we didn't really know was there like what is the storyline and how that was uncovered and and we realized that it it did exist on that landscape yeah absolutely so that seems pretty wild and it's not only the grassland it's the savannas too so a lot of these systems they didn't disappear 40 years ago they didn't disappear 50 years ago they were disappearing in the 1700s as soon as we were starting to settle and started altering that landscape 
unfortunately, they disappeared before the advent of the camera. They disappeared before a lot of early botanists and discor- uh, dis- uh, explorers could get across, you know, the Cumberland Gap um, and really explore these areas. Sometimes what we're looking back at is, you know, we look a lot at, at back at like historical references of long hunters or, you know, early settlers like Audubon um, or, or Boone. And, you know, they talk about there's an early long hunter who talked about coming across the, the Cumberland Gap and saying that, you know, the grasses in Kentucky and Tennessee seemed so expansive that it was an inexhaustible resource. But, you know, 10 years later, they were gone. Mm. So, unfortunately they've just extremely rapidly disappeared and then it became oh you know this is supposed to be a forest this is what it's supposed to look like right and really the genesis for some of these discoveries my boss Dwayne Estes is a phenomenal botanist is you go into some of these areas and with your botany training your ecology training you can pick up on cues and it was really interesting for me to move out from you know when I moved down to Tennessee, I was living in Wyoming and I had worked in Iowa and Northern Iowa and the Midwest for five or six years. So I really understood prairies and to come into these Southeastern ecosystems and being able to pick out the prairie species that we have in the Midwest also here, but then also looking at the, those systems and, and those species and see that we have 10 X the amount of prairie species in the Southeast of you know, the Midwest does, hmm. you know, our, our true prairie states. So it's been like an a, a new age of discovery in the past five years where we're constantly discovering new grasslands and new research because Dwayne Estes has been kind of the, the tip of the spear and Reed Noss out of Florida been the tip of the spear saying, hey, like, this is the, the most bio, one of the most biodiverse parts of the world in the southeast and we're losing that biodiversity because no one is paying attention to the fact that this all used to be grassland wow. and the quail has been a really good kind of uh canary in the coal mine for us because not a lot of people were paying attention but you know come the 80s and 90s and the quail starts really dropping off and now we've got hunters kind of shaking the cage and you know what's happened out here and that's funded a lot of research and you know done a lot of good things so that we can look at it and realize that, you know, the past 50, 60 years of education in the Southeast has, has been wrong. And these systems largely were savannas and grasslands, and we need to restore them to that. But they were just gone in the blink of an eye. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right, so jumping ahead uh, again to you touched a little bit on where this habitat has gone. And I think most of us can sort of conjure up, you know, growing population, rural development, all of that kind of stuff. But when it comes to where the rubber meets the road and wanting to try to, even if it's looking for a silver lining, like if we were going, if we're going to restore this habitat, is the ground and the landscape there to restore? I mean, it's not all skyscrapers and buildings, right? Like there's, there's still lots of ground out there. Like, is there land to restore? There is absolutely, you know, hope on the horizon. I unfortunately, as an ecologist, sometimes get blamed for too much doom and gloom. Um, but it's like you mentioned Aldo, Pol, Aldo Leopold earlier. The cost of an ecological education is seeing the scars on the earth that we've left. But there's definitely hope out there. Now, I'm also a realist, so I'm never going to tell you that there's going to be you know huntable populations of quail in Nashville. That's just not realistic. Right. But we have enough you know land out there, public land, agricultural land, you know rural land that we could absolutely have large swaths 
of restored grassland habitat, both on public and private land in the southeast. And that's really what the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative and Quail Forever partnering with them to create positions like mine is all about. It's all about education and spreading that awareness because once, you know, what in my experience in the past couple of years working my position, once people know about this stuff, oh man, they love it. They right. care about it. It's our culture. It's our heritage. You know, it, it's who we are in these systems and we don't want to lose that. So if we can educate enough people and, and show and spread the love for these systems far enough. There's absolutely hope. It's just, we can't wait and kind of relax because the low hanging fruit for restoration in a lot of these systems are going into these closed canopy forests that used to be savannas and removing the junkier trees. And the tough thing about that is one, we're talking about the past 40 years of education where every kid growing up was like, you know, plant a tree on earth day, Mm -hmm. uh, deforestation is bad and all these things. And that's true. You know, in certain situations, that's true. Logging can absolutely be an extremely beneficial habitat tool when used correctly. But also we're fighting that kind of, of thought where we have to show these systems, you know, the, the burden of proof is, is on us. But if we go in and remove these trees you know, the savanna responds, but we're also fighting a ticking time bomb where we don't know how long that seed viability in the seed bank is, you know, going to last. You know, yep. Dwayne Estes always says, you know, 20 years will be 20 years too late. We've got to restore them now. And we're seeing a lot of, you know, positive kind of, you know, both on public land and private land project towards doing that um, in the southeast. But we need more, and we need more people to get behind it um, and and really champion and rally behind this cry of saving our culture and our heritage, saving the Bob White quail and saving these grasslands. Um, and if we do that, there's you know thousands of acres out there that we can have really pristine, rare habitat in because these savannas are an endangered ecosystem. Yeah. So to touch on this a little bit, you know, economics can play a role a lot of the times in the loss of habitat, but also in the creation of habitat. If you think of timber markets and wood products and that kind of thing, when it comes to grassland restoration, are there, are there economic factors that are huge obstacles for you? Are there, are there win-win situations out there? Touch briefly on, on any sort of economic factors or impacts. Yeah. So there, there's both of those, obviously, you know, there's certain areas where it's just not feasible for some people to restore on private land because of the economics. But there's also a lot of win-wins out there working with Quail Forever and through the Farm Bill program and stuff like that. We do a lot of precision agriculture where, you know, we can enroll these large producers into a CRP or equip program and take their most their their least productive lands that they're farming and losing money on and say hey why don't you not farm this let's put this into you know some high quality grass and bird habitat and we'll pay you for that not quail forever but the the federal farm will pay you for that quail forever is connecting the dots for you exactly quail forever is is connecting the dots for you you know so we have a lot of stuff like that as well as we can go into these a lot these some of these systems and say, hey, you know, if we do some clear cutting here, you can make X amount of money, and then we can also at the same time restore, you know, these habitats. So there's offsetting factors. There's also a ton and ton of cost share out there through the federal farm bill for people who want to do habitat work on, you know, their property. 
when we start talking about public lands, it becomes a little bit harder um, because generally when a public land agency is doing any type of timber management, for any for every $1 roughly they can make off of a timber sale, they're spending 4 or $5. So they're losing money there. But that, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be doing it. Right. It just means that you know, we have to look at it not as a making money opportunity for the agency, more so as we're restoring, you know, critical habitat. Yeah. The stuff like the precision ag, is, that stuff is so cool to me. And kudos oh, yeah. to Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever. But that's that realist take, right? Like, we're not going to, we're not going to kick people off their land and say, you know, we're going to restore this wildlife habitat for the sake of wildlife. It has to be some somewhere meeting in the middle. And, you're, you're making a real clear case for somebody to say, hey, let's set this aside for wildlife. You're losing money on it. Maximize your profits on the rest of your land. And again, I'm speaking at this from a very high level. I don't know the ins and outs of that kind of stuff, but yeah. it sure sounds cool to me. Oh, yeah. And, and some of the great research coming out of, you know, um, University of Tennessee with Pat Kaiser and, and working with ranchers and native grasses is showing, you know, if we convert some of our cool season pastures you know, that are only semi-productive and really unproductive in drought years, which aren't uncommon anymore, to native warm season grasses, we can provide some really critical bird habitat while at the same time putting more biomass and weight on cattle to get your cows to market faster um, than if you were just grazing them on basically a biologic desert, which is a, is a fescue pasture. You know, Man. most fescue pastures aren't going to hold birds. They're not really providing any wildlife service. But if you change that and we graze them on, you know, native tall season grasses, we can put more weight on your cows and make you more money while also providing um, some really critical bird habitat. So there's a lot of win-wins out there. Um, sometimes it takes a little bit of a sacrifice up front, and that's something that Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, and SGI is all about finding out. Where can we make both things work? Um, because that's a huge component. You know, agriculture is such a huge component in the southeast and in the Midwest. You know, down here we have corn, soybean, cotton, tobacco, um, and winter wheat, and, and so much more. That finding, as well as, you know, we produce a lot of cattle, finding those, you know, things that we can mutually benefit from and building those. I mean, those are, those are the projects I get really excited about because now you've got a producer and a landowner who's really excited that we can put some money back in their fence in, in, in their pocket. We can protect those, you know, family farms those generational farms yeah. by putting more money in their pocket and they get to take their kid out behind a dog and, you know, get mm -hmm. really excited. I do a lot of these speaking events in person and I always ask like, you know, he, who here owns a bird dog? And every once in a while I get this old timer who, who will raise his hands and he talks about this beautiful heritage of growing up and flushing coveys and coveys and coveys. And if I can, you know, get 1% of that or 2% of that back, you know, that, that makes it worth it. And sometimes it's just a slight change in our farming operations can make all of the difference for generations. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. That's smart stuff, man. I love it. Um, all right, so Upland Bird Hunters listening to this, you know, I got two all right, two, two people in mind. One is the Upland Bird Hunter listening to this that maybe doesn't have skin in the game other than just being a bird hunter and being generally concerned. Anything that they can do or you would you would tell them to do in order to sort of support your efforts and, and grassland restoration? Absolutely. For sure, find your local Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever chapter. Get involved. 
um, whether that means becoming a member or volunteering, take a, a, you know, be a mentor to someone, you know, that's not as experienced, you know, as you, those things are huge. Arm yourself with the knowledge to understand these systems, go to segrasslands.org and really read about these systems so that when you're talking to other people, you can be a source of education out there. That's what this is all about. The number one thing that we need across the country to restore these habitat types is education. And, you know, so do some reading, get involved with Quail Forever or or any of your local bird agencies um, or, or NGOs. And just be a good mentor and a good hunter. Be, you know, the people that when you think about reading Aldo Leopold and, you know, say, hey, I'm a good conservationist. Yeah. Um, those are the best thing. Educate and just get involved and be a good mentor, man. It's awesome. Huge. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I like to think the podcast can can help a little bit on the education front. So yeah, that's good. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time to come chat with us. The other person I have in mind is maybe somebody in the southeast, maybe a landowner. Maybe it's a small piece of property, big piece of property. If that person was unaware of this or was looking for opportunities to perhaps do some wildlife restoration, habitat work, they contact you. Should they contact somebody else? What's what's the next step for that person? Absolutely. So, I mean, step one, if you contact me, even if I can't help you, I will get you to somebody that can. So feel free to, to contact me um, and just hit up segrasslands.org, hit up quailforever.org, find a biologist near you. There's tons of Quail Forever biologists all throughout the Southeast. Um, and we do, we'll come out to your property and say, hey, here's where we can help you. Here's, we'll drop management plans for you. Um, just reach out, find some way. If that means you got to reach out to me through email, um, I can give you my email or even my cell phone number. I'll get you to who can help you out. Good deal. All right. I'll put some links to that stuff in the show notes. Oh, and I have one other question that I got to ask from Adair, and I have no idea what he's talking about other than <laughs> the context that he gave me. But oh I, I, I recently I recently interviewed Mark Puckett, a uh, Virginia wildlife biologist, and I, I went back to find this because Nick mentioned it to me, and I, I couldn't find it. But there's a plant, I think, called Lespediza. Yes. Are you familiar with it? (laughs) Yes, I am. So Ceresia lespediza um, was a plant planted roughly around the 80s and before, and it was thought to be this magic quail food, right? So it's non-native. It is non-native. It is an Asian species. Okay. Um, It was thought to be this kind of magic bullet. It's going to be phenomenal for the quail. What research shows is not only is it extremely invasive, non-native, and destroys a lot of habitat, but quail can't eat it. They'll select for it. And they'll consume it, but they can't digest the seed because the seed coat is too hard. So they'll essentially starve to death at times because of it. So wow. it is very bad for the landscape. So and it's incredibly hard to kill. It's not like fescue where I can hit it with some herbicide um, and kill it. I mean, you can hit this stuff with herbicide and it just shakes it off. And it has a seed viability of over 100 years in the seed bank. Jeez. So, yeah, super bad, not good. I think Nick mentioned that to me too. So, um, not <laughs> it's kind of beneficial. The old, the old bait and switch for Mr. Bob White Quail. He thinks he's getting a delicious meal, but it's going right through him. Sounds like. Yeah, and <laughs> unfortunately, it's it likes a lot of the things that we do to manage these systems. So it really loves mm. fire. Um, so don't plant it. If you have it, call me and I'll tell you how to kill it. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's like 
buckthorn up here that you you can't see out my window anymore because it's dark now but i got buckthorn back there and it once i figured out what it was and that it was an exotic species it bugs the heck out of me and it grows like crazy oh yeah tough tough and that that ties in back into you know those those food plots and stuff like that focus on the native habitat that's the biggest thing you can do as a hunter or a fisherman or as a land manager is plant native habitats on your your landscape find out what was historically native reach out to a biologist because these things are nuanced you know um and get a management plan written up and you know just start working whether on your own or through federal programs to improve your habitat on your farm and if you live in the city everyone likes to think that like uh oh you know i just have a front yard what can i do i live in town um, my front yard's pretty much a prairie. I'm a little bit radical. I was burning my prairie in town yesterday, but even <laughs> just landscaping it. with, with native plants that you can find from native vendors. I mean, that makes a world of difference for a lot of bird species. You might not have, you know, grouse in your front yard, but you can have a lot of cool grassland birds there. Yeah. Pollinators. Yeah. Yeah. You could do a, you can do a, quite a bit of work with a little bit of little postage stamp stuff uh, props to pheasants forever they, they last year they did a little pollinator membership drive thing and i i think i did a double membership so i got two kits and i actually have a little pollinator <gasps> garden outside the rows sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> no i've got a i've got a one of the one of the bird dogs is telling us it's time to wrap this thing up but <laughs> they uh i planted it last summer and have a have a little pollinator garden outside of the bird shop podcast studio i'm excited to see uh that in its second well first full growing season and see see how it's doing out there oh that stuff's money man it, it's so good i get so excited about that stuff and yeah. you can make a lot of difference to a lot of pollinators on in a very small area so kudos to you man and yeah quail forever pheasants forever it's not just because i work for them but they they are doing some great stuff so make sure to look them up yeah so yeah we've got those pretty much on lock quillforever.org pheasantsforever.org you mentioned the grasslands website anywhere else we should send people uh it is segrasslands.org um follow them on all social medias i'm constantly constantly posting um informative videos how to's um on you know their socials so you just get a lot of really good content and a lot of good information um, from everything from, you know, quail and quail habitat to pollinator habitats and gardening with natives. Cover it awesome. All. Good deal, man. I will grab some of the, those links for from you, and I will put them in the show notes for listeners. Jeremy, I appreciate it. This was an edu- educational, informative conversation and very enjoyable. You know your stuff, man. I appreciate it, and I know the listeners will as well. Thanks for taking some time to chat with me tonight. Thanks, man. It's been a blast. Anytime you want to talk birds or grasslands or any of that stuff, uh, I'm always excited to talk to you. Good deal, man. Yeah, we'll do it again for sure. Sounds good. All right. Have a good night. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Quick reminder, we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporty Dog, and Upland Gun Company. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Bird Shop Podcast.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.